Uh, let's go right to that. Luke chapter 4 is where we'll find our text this morning. Luke chapter 4. And uh, we will be picking up in, uh, let's see here, I believe it is verse 14 is where we'll pick up this morning. Yeah, Luke chapter 4 is where, well, we'll probably start, actually we'll start about verse 16 is where we'll actually start. But um, we'll, we'll get into this thought this morning, but let me, let me just start off by saying it's clear we're in the Christmas season. And despite how everybody celebrates it, it's culturally explained and celebrated all kinds of ways. You know this. In fact, the Christmas season, technically, for retailers, started back, what, sometime in October, I think? They start selling you stuff all the way, way back, about, about October time. But no matter what people think and say and do and all the things people act like, but this Christmas season is about one thing, and it is about the coming of Jesus Christ. That is what it is about. I, I'm glad to. I participate in it just like a lot of you do. I, I like the presents, and I like the food, and I like the family gatherings. I like the church events. I love all that stuff. But at the center of it all, the reason that we celebrate this is something that we call, or sometimes it's called, the Advent. The Advent, the coming. Uh, Advent is a word that should note that there is a coming of a notable person. There's somebody about to come. Somebody is on his way. And it's the one, in this case, the, the advent of Jesus, the Messiah, is that one that the whole world was waiting for. In Galatians, Paul writes it this way. He says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. That there was a moment in time, and I don't know all the details of exactly what was, I clearly don't, because it was God. It's been put on his mind. But he had something in his mind that when everything finally came together, it all kind of was exactly the right moment. That's when Jesus came. That's what this time is all about. So why did he come? Well, that's what I'm trying to answer over these few sermons that I'm preaching at this time of year. I have in my studies come across at least 12 statements that Jesus made, something to the effect, I came because of, I came for this reason. There's at least 12 of those. I'm only going to cover about four of them this Christmas season. I hope we'll be together for a few more, at least a few more years, if not longer than that. So at least I got another Christmas season or two to do the rest of it. So we're just going to do the couple that we can do this year. So today we'll be in Luke chapter 4, and we'll look in uh, verses 16 through 21. That's the, the text that I'm going to take you out of this. Uh, this is an incident in the ministry of Christ. Um, the way that Luke writes, the gospel writers, they all write a little bit different, you understand. Uh, Luke, more, he's more about thematically organizing his material. He's putting the stories in a way that sort of emphasize certain aspects of the ministry of Christ. If you want a chronological order, you're going to probably look at somebody like Mark, who's going to go from the, the earliest moment all the way through the end, and it's just going to be the ministry of Christ. You know, Mark just starts when he starts preaching. But anyway, with Luke, he's not necessarily going through chronology, because we're in chapter 4. I don't know if y'all know, but in two chapters before that, Jesus is born. So two chapters, he goes from being a baby to preaching in the synagogue. And I'm telling you that to say that Mark or Luke is rather emphasizing who Jesus is, less about the order of his ministry. Do you understand that? The reason that that's important is because who he is is very important in this passage. He's, he's actually saying a lot about who Jesus is and why he comes. So if you would just kind of follow along a little bit here with me, and then we'll, I, want to get, I want to get to this one verse Actually, let me start here 
in, uh, let me start at verse 16, where it says that he comes to Nazareth, and when he had been brought, where he had been brought up, so he's coming back home, he comes back to his home, home city, and as was, as his custom was, so this was something he would do pretty much anywhere he went, and definitely anytime he'd come back home, he would do this. He went up, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, this would have been a Saturday, and stood up for to read. So here Jesus is doing something he would normally do, regularly do. He was going back home. He's going into the synagogue. He's apparently been invited. It would just be like if we had somebody that was raised up in this church and maybe gone off to live somewhere else and they've been called to preach and they come back. I'd like to think we might invite them in the pulpit. Wouldn't you? If they come back home for Christmas, we'd say, hey, won't you preach for us one Sunday? That's probably what they were doing. He's a hometown boy. And they say, why don't you come up and preach? So he, he stand, it says he stood up for to read. This was their custom. I found this interesting. They would stand to read the scripture. And then if you go down to um, verse 20, when he starts to preach, he sits down. So, uh, Charlie, you got it right. And, uh, and I know Brother Billy, when he does his listen, y'all sit down and teach. Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm, I'm apparently not like Jesus at all because I stand when I preach and teach. I can't, I can't sit down. But anyway, that Jesus is Jesus is a better teacher. So Charlie and Billy got it right. But anyhow, um, so that he's invited to do that. And when he's invited to, to do that, the passage that's read is um, it says there in verse 17 that there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, the way that they would have done this is that there was a certain reading for every Sabbath, and it just happened to be that they were in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah. Is how it's read there, but it's not the book of Isaiah. And they literally said, again, I couldn't imagine preaching like this. Okay, Matthew, it's time to preach. Here's the book you're going to preach out of. Now you can figure something out. That's what Jesus was done. They gave him the book and said, here, it's Isaiah this month, or this month, this Sunday, or Saturday. It's time to preach out of that. So it's part of their regular cycle. And he says, they've been giving him the book of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and then he reads this passage, verses 18 and 19, or a passage out of Isaiah. If you're interested, it's Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1, and the first part of verse 2. So it's six, Isaiah 61, verse 1, and 2a. That'll come important in a minute. We'll come back to that, but that's what he reads. And so he's, he's reading this, he finds his place, he picks out this passage, in, in Isaiah, what we know is Isaiah 61, and Luke records him reading that. This passage is a clearly messianic passage. It is clearly talking about the coming anointed one. Okay? That's interesting. We'll come back to what he reads and just say, because that's the reason he came. But we'll come back to that, because that's my message, but I want to give you the context here. And just in him reading this, go down, skip down to verse 20, after he closes the book, he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. So here, all he did was read the scripture, and they are just amazed, because if you know anything about how it talks about Jesus in the, in the Gospels, it says he spoke as one who has authority. So I mean, just the fact that he read the scriptures, he read them as if, I don't know, he wrote them. Like he knew what he was talking about. And they hadn't heard anybody do that before. And that was amazing to these people. So he got their attention. But then he makes a claim in verse 21. Look what he says. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. 
Now the scripture he said, he's read, we're going to go into it in some detail here, I'm going to give it just a minute, but he says that scripture that I just read, which is about a coming Messiah and all the things that he would do, you just heard it be fulfilled right here. Now I don't know what else he may have said, I believe verse 21 is merely a summary, that's my opinion, I might be wrong, maybe that's all he said, but I think it's just a summary of what he said, but... He's saying, I just read to y'all Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, and that passage, he says, it's about me, and I am here to fulfill it. And it scandalizes the people. We won't read all this, but if you go to verse 23 and following, you're going to see that they end up, I think it's in verse 29, where they actually want to kill him as a result of him making this statement. Which is amazing to me, especially knowing what he's about to tell them, or what he just read to them. It's amazing that they wanted to do that. But what he was claiming, what Jesus was claiming, is that he has come into the world to be the Messiah. To be the one for whom the world waits. The one who was uniquely prepared to give the world what it needed. The power, the relief, the hope, and the help. The freedom, the insight, the things that were missing from this world. He says, I come to give that to the world. Which is why I say, and I'm summarizing here, that in making the claim to be the Messiah, Jesus is saying, I have come to fix everything that's wrong. That's what he's come to do. Before I go any further, I want to go into these, these points that Jesus makes in verses 18 and 19. But before any further, I just want to take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to use Jesus' message to help you and to me this, this morning. Lord, I pray that you will let us hear the voice of our Savior. As he promises to give us exactly what we're missing. And I pray that we will seek him, follow after him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to what Jesus is, the, the thrust of his message in verses 18 and 19. That's what I skipped over. I just gave you all the story, the context, the background. I just want to go look at what he had to say. Look what he says. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Let's just take each phrase in turn, take just a moment to go through his message and see what he says. The first thing is, he says, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. He says his purpose in saying that, he's saying the poor, he's not just talking about the people who have, have a little bit. He's talking about the people who have nothing. He's talking about the people who cannot provide for themselves, who can't take care of themselves, who do not have the access, the resources to get what they need for themselves. He's saying those people who have no wealth, have no position, who have no strength, it's a bad spot to be in. It's worse to not even know you're in that spot, but he says, I have come to give them the gospel, the good news. I've got good news for those people. And what he's saying is, I have come to bring power to these people who have no power at all, the weak, the weakest of weak people. The good news here is he's giving, he's come to give what we need and do not have. What is that? Well, he's come to give real wealth. That's what I'm talking about. Real wealth, by the way, is not what you can measure in your bank account. That's not what the kind of wealth he brings. 
Now, I believe in the, in the scheme of things, he is the owner of everything in the world. So if he needs to provide you some physical thing, he can do that. But that's not the real wealth that he's providing. He's providing real wealth that cannot pass away, that, that, that nothing in this world can replace. There's a passage over in the Revelation of Jesus Christ uh, in chapter 3 where Jesus is talking to a church. It's the Laodicean church who happened to be very financially materially wealthy church and they believed and this is what jesus was fussing at them about that they kind of had everything they needed we're good and jesus said no no no. i'm counseling you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou may be thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear he's saying listen you you think you're rich but you don't have the wealth that i provide and there are people in this world who are, by my and your assessment, that they're actually poor and have no wealth and have no access to things. But there are some people in this world who may have, I mean, they have stuff that some of us dream about having. But Jesus says, all of those people are poor because they need the wealth that I provide. That's what he's providing. He's given that kind of power. He's actually given real power. The kind of power that shows up when we have none. This is what he says, this is what he says to, to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What Jesus came to do is he's preaching the gospel to the poor, the people who do not have anything, do not have material wealth, they also don't have any strength. And he says, when you are at your weakest, I will show up in strength and strength. I can give you strength. He also has come to give us a real position. I think sometimes we think that we can uh, we can get ourselves, kind of jockey ourselves into place. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I have, this is Ephesians chapter 2, I have raised you up that you can sit in heavenly places with me. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says that he has given us a position in heaven. We have a spot. In fact, in another place it says that as believers in Jesus, we will rule the world. This is in, second, this is in Corinthians, I think it's chapter 6, that he says we're going to rule the world because of what Jesus has done. What I'm trying to get you to see that what he's providing is to those people who are at their weakest, those people who, whether they know it or not, understand it or not, who have the least, he's come to provide them the power, the ability, the strength that they need in order to do it. This is why Jesus has come. He goes on to say that he has come to heal the or, yeah, to uh, heal the brokenhearted. In verse 18, he's come to heal the brokenhearted. Y'all know what broken is. I mean, things are broken, they're, they're messed up. But the idea there is that it's something that's bruised, something that's crushed, something that by outside forces has been, something outside of, that, that of yourself has been pushed on you and it has broken you and has just crushed you. That's the word there, that, that broken. And he adds there that it's broken hearted because I can tell you from my own experience, and some of y'all know this better than I do, that some of the hardest and deepest wounds are on the inside. You know, y'all don't have to say amen. You can just say ouch inside and that's fine, but that's the truth in my life. I, I'd almost rather some of y'all come up to me and hit me in the face as to do and say some of the things people have said to me and done to me. I mean, honestly, at least I can fight you back. Some of the things people do 
in there, on the, the, the internal wounds that provide. That's what he's talking about there, this broken hearted. He's saying that those are the, those can be the hardest wounds to heal. But what he has done is in verse 18, he says, I have come to heal the broken hearted. He comes with the cure to fix it. And by the way, that, that word heal, I, I know you know what it means, but I want you to think about this for a minute. It's not simply, I'm going to put a band-aid on it. I'm going to put some medicine to dull the pain. That's not healing. I appreciate it whenever I'm in pain to have something that dulls the pain. But that's not healing. And if that pain is still there, it's still there. Even if the, the medicine is muted it a little bit. I want something to get it gone. I want it so that I don't, when I wake up in the morning, my foot doesn't hurt so I can walk across the, 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 the living room. And I mean, are you right, Bob? Am I right, Bob? You don't want to have to take medicine for that or put it in a boot or whatever else you got to do. That's not healing it. That's putting a Band-Aid on it, you understand. But what he's doing is he's healing the brokenhearted. And what he's doing is he's not just improving the situation. He's not even just reversing the fortunes. What he's actually doing is he's fully repairing the problem. He is going in and completely replacing the broken thing. <laughs> he is going in and he's taking out the garbage and he's putting in something brand new. Something completely new. He's taking the scars of our loss and he's replacing them with an incorruptible treasure. He's taking the pain of rejection that some of us have felt from people in our lives that, that we've loved and that they loved us or we, we thought they did. They, 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 we thought like we were rejected by them. And he's taking that rejection and replacing it with full love, full acceptance. And saying, I unconditionally love you in spite of who you are. That's what he's doing. He's taking what we know as the sting of death. And some of y'all know this because you've had people that you love dearly pass off from this world. You probably even miss them as I'm speaking right now. We just talked about a young lady who lost her life that her parents wanted to remember this as her birthday. That the sting of that death, the sting of that, he replaces that with abundant life, eternal life. Something to look forward to. Again, this life has an end. We know that. There's an expiration date. There's a moment in time, I believe, over in Revelation, I think it's chapter 10, where Jesus is going to say, in my, my interpretation of that passage, he's going to say, time is done. I'm over. It's all done. And you know what he does after the end of that? There's eternal life that goes on and on. And those, those husbands and those wives and those daughters and those parents and those friends and those cousins and all the family members that have gone on, we will be, if they are believers in Jesus, will be reunited with them. Why? Because of what he's done. That's not fixing a problem. That's not putting a little salve on a little wound. He's reversing the problem. He's healing the brokenhearted. That's what he's doing. He, Because he came, those broken people can now be healed. He goes on to say in verse 18 that he's, uh, he's come to, to preach deliverance to the captive. Preach deliverance to the captive. What he's doing here is he is bringing freedom to those who are enslaved. Specifically those who are enslaved to sin. Now, what he is doing in, in preaching this is that he is preaching forgiveness of sin. Because we have all been, let me put it to you this way, we've all been born in sin. We've all been... Ephesians chapter 2, I think the way Paul writes about it, Ephesians 2, verse 2, is that we were born in sin, 
We like to sin. We choose to sin. Every chance we get, we sin. So sin is just who we are. And one of the things about sin is that you can't just do sin and walk away from it. <laughs> when you commit sin, when you participate in things that God said not to participate in, you know what happens? And this is what this is what we this is what the devil wants you to forget. This is what the devil wants you to say, no, 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 it's not that big a deal. Everybody messes up. Nobody's perfect. This is what the devil wants you to believe. But you know what, you know what the truth of the matter is? Anytime we do anything against God's will, against God's plan, we now are a captive to that sin. Because what that sin does is it changes us on the inside. And you know what it does? It blinds us to it. It makes us think, oh, I don't need, that's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. That's what sin does. It lies to us. And because we're, we don't even know it's bad, we don't even understand what it's doing to us, we then become a servant to it, captive to it. But Jesus brings forgiveness to that so that we can no longer be enslaved to it. He gives us freedom from it. He actually opens our eyes so we can actually understand what it is we're involved in so that we're free to leave that sin that we can, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, that we can mortify the deeds of the body. We can kill that sin. We can't just, we don't have to lay, hang on to it. We don't have to give ourselves over to it. Instead, as, as Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And now we can serve Him. And we can do so freely. We have the choice to do that. We have the option to do that. We are free. If we are in Christ, what Jesus does is He now says, that slave master sin, you're no longer enslaved to that sin. You now have the freedom to obey me. That's what He provides. That's what he does. So because he came, the enslaved can be free. Now look on with me in verse 18. He says that not only are we going to preach deliverance to the captives, but we're recovering sight to the blind. Now, as I mentioned, sin has both physical and spiritual consequences. What's amazing is that it does it corrupts you on the inside, making you not even understanding what it causes you to do, but what he does is he brings light. He shows us, he says, listen, that's what your sin is doing. He makes, look, can I just ask you, you don't have to answer, please don't answer this out loud, don't answer this out loud, but think about my answer. It's a rhetorical question for you to think about. Do you ever, if you're, if you're a Christian and you sin, doesn't that guilt of that sin just get all over you? Oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that. Do you know why that that comes along? That's the light of the gospel going into your soul. Because you know what the worst thing it could be? The worst thing this is what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to sin that sin and say, it's what everybody does. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what our culture is telling us. People that want to do certain sins, they're actually saying, that's nothing wrong with it. That's you being closed-minded to my way of living. No, no. The light of the gospel is, if God says it's wrong, and I don't care what that is, Everything from sexual sin to hate to, 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 to gossip and everything in between. I don't care what it is. You steal from people. What he's going to say is you cannot do that and get away with it. He's going to shine his light of truth into that and say, that's wrong. That's sin. And if the, what the Lord's done is he's come into our world to tell us that's wrong. That's sin. To not allow that to continue. Because he came. He gave us true sight, real understanding. He's opened our eyes to the blindness that we have been, that we have in sin. 
Then he goes on to say, to set at liberty them that are bruised. The last part of verse 18. Now remember I told you he forgives sin? Thank the Lord he forgives it. Aren't you glad he forgives your sin? I'm glad he forgives my sin. I don't have my sin to carry. There's that one verse of, uh, it is well with my soul. There's that one, one verse in that song that says, my sins are nailed to the cross and I re he remembers them no more. I, I, and I, don't, I, don't, I love that verse. They're nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. I love that verse. But not only does he forgive us of our sins, but look at what he says there. He sets at liberty them that are bruised. What Jesus does with sin is he delivers us from it. So it's in the past, he actually removes the load of the shame and the guilt from us. Because that's what sin does. It bears down on us. It's like, it's like we're carrying a load that we're, we're just not made to build or built to make, uh, built to carry. We're, we're just not built for that. And we're, we're carrying that load and it's weighing us down. It's bruising us. It's, it's hurting us. It is causing us pain. And what he's doing is he's taking those external force of our sin that we're overwhelmed by the pressures and the stresses that we're weighted down by the guilt and the pressure to perform. That everybody's looking at us saying, why aren't you like this? Or why do you do that? He's taking those guilt, that guilt off us. He's taking that anchor of the addiction and those, those inherent lustful desires that are in us. He's taking those things and he removes that burden. He takes that weight off of us. And he has, as he writes, as, the, as Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, he has carried our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He gives us instead, this is Jesus talking in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 11, where he says, I've given you a light burden. My load is light. I need y'all to hear what I just said. Don't have Jesus. You are going to carry around in this world more than you can bear. There are people, you might even know some of them, who literally killed them. I'm talking about suicide because of the pain of shame and guilt. And those that don't do that carry through their entire life grief and they have psychological pain and, 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 and torture inside because of what they have done or what others have done to them. Y'all know what I'm, am I, am I talking to? Foolishness, or you know what I'm talking about. This is real. This is what people deal with. Real people. Not just somebody out there, but people y'all know, I know. That kind of burden. He says, I'm going to take that burden off. And what Jesus says is, here, I've got a burden. It's an easy load. This is Matthew chapter uh, 11, verses 28, 29, 30. If you go look at that, he'll say, my burden is easy. My burden is light. He says, I'm not going to stress you. I'm going to give you exactly what you need. If you'll do things my way, it will not be heavy. It will not be light. I will take that off of you. I've already carried your sorrows. I've already taken your griefs. You simply need to come to me and I will relieve not only the guilt of your sin, but even the burden of carrying it around. That's what he's going to take from us. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 7, you can cast your care on him because he cares for you. That's what Jesus does. But I want you to see this last thing, and I am getting close to the end, so y'all hang with me for just a second. Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah, Luke chapter 4, verse 19. He says, to preach the acceptable 
year of the Lord. Let me just give you the headline on this. What Jesus has done is he has come to bring grace to all people. Let me explain for just a minute. The year of the Lord that he's talking about there is not necessarily a calendar date. Now, I, I happen to believe that there's going to come a time that no man knows the hour of, that, 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 that the Lord is going to return, and I believe that there's a moment in time. So I'm not one of these people that doesn't believe in, you know, like whatever the different, different versions of the end times where it just sort of fades into oblivion. I, I don't believe that. I believe there's a moment. I believe that's going to happen at a moment. However, this year of the Lord, as it's talked about in the Old Testament, is not necessarily a calendar date on its own, but it is a brand new era. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, one of these days I want to preach on this. I just can't get my courage up to preach on Leviticus again. Y'all are, are patient with me when they did it before. I'm going to do it again, but we'll do it again later. But Leviticus 23. God institutes something for the children of Israel. It's called the day of or the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is what they call it. Now, I want y'all to imagine this. The year of Jubilee. Every, uh, I think it's 50 years. I may be wrong on my numbers, but it's in about 50 years, something like that. Every, every, every so often, they would have this thing where anybody that had a debt, it would be forgiven. If I had family land, by the way, not just family land that we bought in like we do here in America, but that God granted to my family because that's what he did to the children of Israel, I might be able to sell it to you for a few years because I might need some money, but in that 50 year after that year of Jubilee, it'd come right back to my family. You see, all, every debt would be, if, if people had to indenture themselves into slavery because they needed to pay off debts, Fine, you could do that because that was allowed in that culture. But at the end of that time, you were you were released from any debt that you had. Everything was forgiven. Everything was given back. Everything was returned. Every fifty years, the debts were forgiven. The slaves were free. The land was returned. But here's the interesting thing about that in Leviticus twenty-three. Now, by the way, I'm going somewhere with this. Here. Just so y'all know, I'm not just random ram from here. I'm going somewhere. So hang with me for a second. There's an interesting thing about that Leviticus 23, that year, or that, that uh, year of Jubilee. Israel, by all accounts of Scripture, never recognized it. They never did it. Now, I want you to think about this. God has given them a way to take all their debts away, to return everything that's ever been taken from them because of bad times, because of hard times. They've given them a way to do that. And they're as greedy as you and me. You know that? Could you imagine? Because it's all great when I owe you something. Please forgive my debts. But you owe me something. You better believe it. Where's my money at? Am I right? Y'all ain't going to save me because y'all know what I'm talking about. I know it. I know it. I know it. That's how they were. They never recognized it. And what this acceptable year of the Lord, I believe, is Jesus Christ reinstating the year of Jubilee and righting every wrong that's ever been wronged. That every person who's had their debts pile up and gone to the grave and had to live with their families because they piled up, piled up, piled up debt because of that. Jesus is coming back to say, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. That every family who has had things taken from them, not through their fault, but because of other people being greedy, God said, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to fix that. 
What everything that has gone wrong, every young person who has had their innocence stolen from them, from some older person who had no right and no business doing that, that is going to be returned. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying everything that has been wrong in the year of the Lord, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to reinstate Jubilee. And I'm going to make up for centuries, millennium of us not doing this. I'm going to make, for, make up for that. He is announcing this. He is saying this is an open era of grace for Jew and Gentile. He's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to fix all the wounds. This is what he's come to do. He's announcing good news and I want to emphasize this for you. When he says the year of the Lord, and I know he's talking to a Jewish audience here, but I believe based on everything I can read in the Old Testament and the, the tenor and the tone of it, which is actually what upset some of the religious people of Jesus' day, it was something that was open to whosoever will. All you have to do is come. And he is offering this to you. Jesus has come. As a baby in Bethlehem, while we celebrate Christmas, he is here now. If you're a Christian right now, his spirit is indwelling in you. And he said, I will never leave. I will never forsake you. And Jesus will come again. Y'all with me just another second? Y'all hang on just another second, please. Because he is coming again. I need y'all to see this. Jesus stops in verse 19, and I believe this is on purpose. I believe if Jesus had said more, I believe God would have given us more of the scripture. I don't think he would have interrupted this. I want you to, I want you to see this. He says, in verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. I'm not going to make you do it, but if you were to go to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 2, the first half of that verse is where Jesus stops. There's a second half of that verse. The second half of that verse says, Connects the year of the Lord with a day that would come called the day of vengeance. Now Jesus stopped right here because what Jesus was trying to tell him is, listen, I've come to fix everything. Just come to me. He wasn't trying to hit him over the head with, with the, the judgment and the doom and the gloom. He was just trying to say, I'm here to love you. But there's more to that verse. And I want you to know that he didn't come the first time to judge this world. But when he comes again, he will judge. He will judge this world. And there will be a day of vengeance. And he is returning soon. You go to Revelation chapter 19. You just read what he is going to do. And he is going to rule with a rod of iron. I happen to believe that we are in a moment right now that we can come to Jesus. And he will give us that jubilee. Wipe the debts clean. Reverse the curses that have been placed upon us. He will do that for us. He will comfort us. But that day of Jesus' return, it will be a comfort to you believers. That's what Paul says in Thessalonians. It's a comfort comfort with these words. But it will be a terror to those who are not believers in Jesus. Therefore, we need to accept him now. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I believe that Jesus has come to intervene in our hopeless and lost causes. To deal with our spiritual poverty, to fix our broken spirits, to break the chains of sin that every man and woman on this planet has ever dealt with. 
eyes to the blindness that sin has put on our eyes and to lift heavy burdens off us. He is announced this truth to us. He announced it in that synagogue, I believe, in Nazareth. He announced it to those people so that you and I could hear it. And he's opened his arms of grace today. Will you see?